Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 17, The Battle of the Alamo. I'm Brandon Seal. When San Fernando's bells rang out in the middle of the day on February 22, 1836, a Monday, San Antonians were confused. It took a minute for people to remember that a lookout had been posted in the bell tower. He was watching for the return of the Centralist Army that had been defeated the previous December after five days of brutal house-to-house fighting in San Antonio. The so-called Siege of Bear had left much of the town damaged, particularly the old Mission Valero, also known as the Alamo. Only 80 or so members of the victorious Revolutionary Army of the People had stayed around to repair the damage, anticipating the return of Centralist forces, albeit much later in the spring. Yet as soon as he learned of his brother-in-law's defeat in San Antonio, Santa Ana gave the order to move out. His 6,000-man army set out from San Luis Potosí around January 1, 1836, on a Hannibalian march that would see him cover 600 miles in only 45 days, 13 miles per day, during one of the coldest winters on record. When his army crossed the Rio Grande on February 12th at San Juan Bautista, the site of those original Rio Grande missions that seeded San Antonio, there was one foot of snow on the ground. His men, many of them conscripts from southern Mexico, were wholly underdressed for the weather, and the nature of the forced march drew out the column over a couple hundred miles. The enlisted men were put on half rations almost immediately, which the officers pilfered anyway, and the thousands of camp followers, women, children, muleteers, and profiteers, only aggravated the shortages. Then, the pack animals began to die off. Juan Seguin and his Tejano rangers had burned all the forage that they could between the Rio Grande and San Antonio, which soon reduced the centralist army to moving its loads on men's backs. According to Santa Ana's own reports, at least 400 men died on the march. And the men that did make it to San Antonio arrived exhausted, malnourished, and very near death, which cost Santa Ana the opportunity to take the town by surprise on February 21st when he first entered the area. The rebels in San Antonio, numbering now 150 or so men, were mostly hung over that Sunday, having blown out a classic San Antonio Fandango the night before. But Santa Ana hesitated, and by the next morning, he was sighted by San Antonian John El Colorado Smith, who returned to town at such a ferocious gallop that his fellow scout fell from his horse and nearly died. When San Fernando's bells tolled and El Colorado Smith rode back into town, a torrent of activity ensued. Everything worth anything was pulled back into the Alamo. Pots, pans, blacksmith supplies, clothes, medical supplies, and more. All the cattle and horses in and around town were herded into the compound. Many San Antonians had, of course, already fled. But some, particularly those whose families were a part of the Alamo fighting force, moved into the Alamo as well. El Colorado Smith, before seeking safety himself in the Alamo, went to help his compadre, Gregorio Esparza, gather his belongings and move his family into the compound. At the same time, Juana Lozoya and her mother and sister-in-law entered the old mission, which her husband, Eliel Melton, and her brother, Toribio, now defended. And Juana and Gertrudez Navarro, daughters of Angel Navarro and cousins to Jim Bowie by marriage, took refuge in the Alamo as well, Juana having just married an Alamo defender, Dr. Horace Owlsbury, who would leave shortly as a messenger to the east. Angel Navarro, her father, was horrified to learn what his daughters had done. He knew the man who was marching now on San Antonio, and he knew his capacity for brutality. He had met Santa Ana back in 1813, when the now dictator was just a young lieutenant on his way to butchering hundreds of San Antonians at the Battle of Medina. May of 1835 had served up more recent proof of Santa Ana's barbarity, when he had crushed a similar Federalist-inspired revolt in Zacatecas and allowed the town to be sacked and nearly razed to the ground. On the evening of February 22nd, with Santa Ana poised to enter the town at any minute now, Ancan Navarro rode out to treat with him. When Santa Ana's brother-in-law, the diminutive earring-wearing General Cos, occupied San Antonio the year before, 
Angel Navarro pursued a similar strategy of diplomacy with the invading general that, he believed, had minimized the bloodshed and suffering of all involved. Navarro attempted to do the same thing now with Santa Ana. He reassured the dictator of the town's neutrality. Not an entirely true statement, but certainly a wise one to make. He pointed to his own very public and repeated declarations of loyalty to the Mexican nation, even as he might quibble with the constitutionality of some of Santa Ana's measures. And he informed Santa Ana that the men in the Alamo had known of his approach for days, implying that the element of surprise had already been lost. This also wasn't true, but it bought time for non-combatants to flee and for the Alamo to secure its defenses. And the Alamo defenders needed all the time they could get, not only to secure the compound, but frankly, just to decide who their commanders were. Several men in the garrison had plausible claims to command. The loudest of these was William Barrett Travis, known also as Buck Travis, a rabble-rouser who had entered Texas illegally in 1831 at the age of only 21, fleeing debt and wedlock. Tall, with auburn hair and blue eyes, he was charismatic, something attested to by his ability to excite a mob and by his success with the ladies. He slept with at least 56, if we are to believe his diaries, which he kept in Spanish. In 1832 in East Texas, he led a series of minor protests that would go down as the Anahuac disturbances, bring him to the attention of centralist authorities, and earn him a place on General Cosa's list of most wanted Texans. Travis fought by Juan Seguin's side at the Battle of Concepcion, and then later with his troop escorting General Cosa's army back to the Rio Grande after his defeat in San Antonio. Travis returned to San Antonio on February 3rd, now as a lieutenant colonel, with orders to raise a 100-man mounted legion and to transport anything of value from San Antonio back to the east. Despite his own displeasure at remaining in San Antonio, far from the political intrigue back in Washington on the Brazos, he came to the same conclusion as Bowie had in the previous episode, realizing that whoever held San Antonio held Texas. In the older man's words, quote, he would rather die in these ditches than give them up to the enemy, end quote. It was, however, one of the few things that he and Bowie could agree on. Whereas Travis held a commission from the provisional government of Texas, Bowie's source of authority was less formal. He was a frontier colonel by dint of his own legendary deeds. He had also just led men successfully in the siege of Bear, and he was a long-tenured San Antonian with ties to the town's most prominent families. Travis had actually done some lawyering for Bowie on several occasions, and Bowie probably looked at him the way we might look at our youthful accountant who suddenly wants to act like he's our boss. At 40 years old in 1836, Bowie wasn't moved by Travis's rhetorical flourishes or youthful romanticism. Yet Jim Bowie's life wasn't without color itself, having first come to San Antonio in 1828 to avoid legal problems in Louisiana occasioned by his slave smuggling, land fraud, and deadly feuds. The most famous of these feuds occurred on September 19, 1827, on a sandbar in the Mississippi River. Bowie himself was not the duelist that day, yet he had a complicated history with one of the other partisans standing nearby, a Mr. Crane, who had already tried to kill him once. On this day, Crane tried again, pulling his gun, firing, and only narrowly missing Bowie. In the King James Bible style of the day's newspaper reports, Bowie responded, quote, Crane, you have shot at me, and I will kill you, end quote. Bowie charged him. Crane fired and missed again, but then threw the pistol at Bowie's head, knocking him down long enough for one of his allies to march over and fire a pistol into Bowie's chest. Well, as you might imagine, getting shot in the chest made Bowie really angry. He somehow forced his way onto his feet, screamed, charged, and then got shot in the thigh by someone else, who then went to work on him with a sword cane. Shot twice and stabbed at least as many times, Bowie then unsheathed the knife that was about to make him famous. Long, thick, and weighty, Bowie's knife could slice, strike, stab, and bludgeon. It was part razor, part cleaver, part short sword, and all frontier. The rage-filled Bowie pulled himself up by his attacker's shirt collar, thrust the knife into his chest, and twisted. The attacker collapsed on top of Bowie, dead, but one of his allies rushed up and stabbed Bowie in the side again, which was stupid because it alerted Bowie to that man's presence. 
Bowie, shot, stabbed, and weighed down now by a dead man bleeding out on top of him, threw the corpse to the side and slashed his new assailant's side wide open, at which point his attackers decided that they'd had enough. The sandbar fight, as it would become known, passed immediately into legend and made Bowie one of the most famous frontiersmen of his age. His legend preceded him when he fled to San Antonio in 1828, where he quickly befriended one of the wealthiest and best-connected men in the province, Juan Martín de Veramendi. Veramendi and Bowie went into business together, and Bowie soon married Veramendi's 19-year-old daughter, Ursula, in what was, by all accounts, a marriage based on genuine affection. Five years later, you will recall from episode 14, Veramendi would rise to become governor of Coahuila in Texas and move the state capital from Saltillo to Monclova, setting off General Cosa's march north. Only five months after his marriage in 1831, however, Bowie set out in search of the non-existent Los San Saba silver mines. After several weeks searching, all he found were hostile Indians, or more precisely, 160 of them found him. Bowie and his small party, several of whom were San Antonians and all of whom were veterans of frontier warfare, hunkered down. For 13 hours, and outnumbered 13 to 1, they held off their foes. Eventually, after Bowie and his party had killed 40 of the attackers and wounded another 30, the Indians gave up. Bowie wrote and published the account of the battle in Spanish, which helped spread his fame as far south as it had already traveled north. Yet Bowie was not a boastful man, another reason why he probably found Travis's theatrics off-putting. Bowie was generally humble, reserved, and temperate, which is what makes what happened in the weeks leading up to Santa Ana's entrance into San Antonio so strange. Soon after Travis's arrival on February 3, 1836, things came to a head between Bowie and Travis. Out of principle, the hundred or so volunteers gathered in the Alamo declared that they would not serve under a commissioned officer like Travis, whose commission only came from a self-proclaimed provisional government of dubious authority anyway. Prodded on by Bowie, on February 14th, the volunteers held an election to choose their commander and selected Bowie. To celebrate, Bowie went on the bender to end all benders, remaining drunk for nearly two days straight, releasing prisoners from the town jail, destroying property, and generally encouraging disorderly conduct by his own men. Juan Seguin, who was the town judge at this point, almost had to have him arrested. We don't have a good explanation for why Bowie drank himself into such a state. The best we have is that it was a byproduct of pent-up stress from the siege of Bear and the general turmoil of the times, as well as of the lingering sorrow he still felt at the death of his wife in the 1834 cholera epidemic that killed a fifth of all San Antonians. By the time he sobered up a few days later, he was repentant, and he reached a compromise with Travis, whereby Travis would command the so-called regular soldiers, and Bowie would command the volunteers. Yet almost immediately after the compromise, his body weakened by his drinking binge, Bowie was beset by fevers, then chills, then comatose episodes interspersed with only brief moments of lucidity. On February 23rd, the day that Santa Ana's first troops entered town, he had to be carried into the Alamo, where he ensconced himself in a private room along the south wall. Command devolved onto Buck Travis, but the respect of the men did not. There was another man in the garrison, more famous even than Jim Bowie, whom the rank and file looked to as their natural leader. Born in 1786, David Crockett was not a young man when he walked into San Antonio. Although one of the oldest men in the garrison at the age of nearly 50, he was one of the newest arrivals to Texas, having crossed the Sabine River just a month prior. He had the light complexion of a woodsman, but moved with the easy athleticism of a man accustomed to work. The Tennessean parted his hair down the middle around his dark blue eyes, and by 1836, he had lived perhaps the most celebrated public life in America since Benjamin Franklin. David Crockett had experienced all the failures and exhilarations of frontier life in a way that only a Disney series could really capture, from Indian wars to personal bankruptcies to feats of marksmanship and storytelling that made him a frontiersman's frontiersman, the kind of man that the famously fractious Scotch-Irish types settling the North American frontier wanted to represent them. In 1817, he first won elected office as a magistrate. By 1821, he was a state legislator, and by 1827, he was a U.S. congressman. 
Almost immediately upon his arrival to Washington, Crockett made an impression. He could hold an audience with his homespun aphorisms and wild tales from the frontier. He was a master of self-promotion in the exaggerated idiom of the time, describing himself as, quote, half horse, half alligator, a little touch with a snapping turtle, can wade the Mississippi, leap the Ohio, ride upon a streak of lightning, and slip without a scratch down a honey locust, end quote. More than anything, as you can tell, he was funny. When he learned that Congress provided itself free lemonade and charged it out as stationary, back when the perks of office were much more modest by far, he mockingly proposed that whiskey be provided and written up as fuel. On a different occasion, he quipped that, quote, there ain't no ticks like politics. Yet there was always something profound to his wit, as when he described fame as, quote, like a shaved pig with a greased tail, and it's only after it has slipped through the hands of some thousands that some fellow, by mere chance, holds on to it, end quote. Crockett became the symbol of what Americans wanted to believe they were. Quote, be sure you're right, then go ahead, end quote, was his simple mantra. And indeed, it was the mantra of the age. He was immortalized in 1831 in a popular play called The Lion of the West, boosted by an unauthorized but wildly successful and wildly exaggerated biography of his life. When he wrote his own actual autobiography in 1834, it only elevated his celebrity further still. It's a rich, funny, and elegant book and plays perfectly to the genre and to the image of the man the nation wanted to believe in. Crockett was among those rarest of public figures, a man who was, by and large, the kind of man that he held himself out to be. Yet politics, then as now, abhors authenticity. And when Crockett turned his wit on the man who would give his name to the age, President Andrew Jackson, his days were numbered. Crockett refused to compromise the brand that he thought he had been elected to represent, and his disdain for the dirty details of political give and take left him without allies. In 1835, his opponents heavily gerrymandered his district in an effort to rid themselves of the backwoodsmen from Tennessee. Crockett saw it coming, yet made no effort to modify his message to his new district. He campaigned on what had always been his signature cause, making land readily available to common folks, frontiersmen like himself who worked the land they held, and he made a simple promise to voters. If elected, he would serve them faithfully. If not, they could all go to hell, and he would go to Texas. The new year, 1836, found him crossing the Sabine River in the company of a dozen or so other Tennessee volunteers. He might very well have stopped in East Texas and fallen in with the political scene there, where his celebrity would have all but guaranteed him an important role in the events to come. No one, in fact, expected a 50-year-old man to take up arms against Santa Ana, much less on the front lines. But Crockett insisted. On January 12th, he signed on for a six-month stint as a volunteer, though only after he was allowed to insert the word Republican in the oath by which he pledged his support to any future Texas government. Fittingly, Crockett was dispatched to San Antonio, the town where the citizens called each other Republicanos as a mark of respect. Upon arrival there in early February, many in the Alamo urged him to take command in the face of Travis and Bowie's squabbles. Crockett refused, accepting only an appointment as a high private and requesting assignment to the most vulnerable part of the old mission. He remained throughout most of the battle to come the most respected man in the garrison, an important morale booster, and according to Travis, quote, seen at all points animating men to do their duty, end quote. And yet probably Crockett's most important contribution to the garrison was his endorsement of Travis's leadership after Bowie's illness struck him down. Crockett's support gave Travis an authority that the younger man never could have won on his own. And yet Travis's relationship with Juan Seguin was more important even than his relationship with Crockett. The two young men were uncannily alike. Travis was 26, Seguin was 29. They each had probably read a little too much Walter Scott and Lord Byron. They were each handsome, dashing even, and personally fearless, if not a bit reckless. They had served together now twice, both before and after the Siege of Bear, and won some kind of unspoken respect for each other. Seguin, as a judge, ex-mayor, and ex-department chief, held far more authority in San Antonio and with San Antonians than Travis. Additionally, Seguin was by far the most successful recruiter for the revolution to date, 
especially amongst a key demographic, Tejanos, or Texans of Hispanic descent. According to historian Raul Ramos, Tejano participation in the Texas Revolution as a percentage of their population in the state exceeded that of Anglos, and this was due in very large part to Seguin's efforts. And so by embracing Seguin early and incorporating him into his command structure, Travis made an ally of him, and Seguin rewarded Travis's respect by recognizing his command, bringing in crucial men and supplies, and serving as the link with Tejano civilian leaders, such as José Antonio Navarro, his uncle José Francisco Ruiz, and his son Francisco Antonio Ruiz, who had just taken office as mayor of San Antonio. And so by many curious coincidences, and by many more winding roads, on February 23rd, you had the most amazing collection of larger-than-life personalities inside the Alamo's walls. Each of these men, Crockett, Bowie, Travis, and Seguin, were celebrities in their own time. It's hard to find a modern analog for this. The best I can do is to compare it to like if George Strait, David Robinson, a young Bruce Springsteen, and Selena had been the heroes of United Flight 93 on September 11th. It was all too improbable, even then, that they should all be in the same place at the same time and all aligned behind so noble of a cause. It's part of what made the Alamo story a legend even before its ending was known. On the afternoon of February 23rd, these Alamo commanders and the 150 or so defenders watched as 10 times their number, 1,500 Centralist soldiers, crossed the San Antonio River and took up positions around the old mission. Santa Ana punctuated his arrival by raising a blood-red flag over San Fernando Cathedral and ordering his buglers to let loose the strains of El Degüello, which we might translate as the throat-cutting. The message was clear. No quarter would be offered the rebels, and any surrender must be unconditional. And yet the men in the Alamo stayed, for different reasons. At least two dozen or so of the men were longtime San Antonians, or had deep connections to the town. One, Toribio Lozoya, had actually been born in the Alamo. And San Antonians knew all too well why they were fighting. They had been fighting this war for a generation. But for the 120 or so newer volunteers, many of whom had no land in Texas, and some of whom, like the New Orleans Grays, had only arrived in the preceding months, their motivation was more abstract. We have trouble relating to men like this, and some cynics have tried to view them as Santa Ana did, as mere pirates or land grabbers. That really doesn't hold up, though. Even if land was more expensive back in the U.S., there was still plenty to go around, and it could be had without having to risk your life. There was something else motivating these volunteers. The mythology of 1776. They were zealous proselytes of the gospel of liberty and of republican government, which in their minds were inextricably linked to the idea of land ownership. If you owned your land, you controlled your own means of support, and were therefore uncorruptible and impervious to political intrigue by the well-connected. One Alamo defender's quote nicely demonstrates this view of land and liberty, and his own commitment to each. Quote, If we succeed, the country is ours. It is immense in extent, and fertile in its soil, and will amply reward all our toil. If we fail... Death in the cause of liberty and humanity is not cause for shuddering, end quote. Fifteen women and children stayed behind in the Alamo too, huddled now in the Alamo Chapel, including Gregorio Esparza's wife and children, Susanna Dickinson and her infant daughter, Juana Lozoya and her mother and sister-in-law, and the Navarro sisters, daughters of the former Mayor Angel Navarro. It's important to point out that most of these non-combatants probably could have left the compound safely and taken up residence in town for the duration of the battle. They chose to stay, to subject themselves to danger, and to place themselves at the service of the garrison, cooking and cleaning and caring for the fighting men. 24-year-old Juana Navarro Alsbury in particular rose to take on a sort of leadership role amongst the non-combatants, calming them with her poise, carrying messages to and from town, and even caring for her ailing cousin-in-law, Jim Bowie, who referred to her as sister. Early the next day, on February 24th, Buck Travis took up his pen and wrote out a series of letters, transmitting to the page the words that he had already employed to steal the resolve of his garrison and the message carried out by San Antonian John El Colorado Smith. To the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, fellow citizens and compatriots, 
I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot, and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and of everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. William Barrett Travis. Travis's opening line in this letter has always intrigued me. Quote, to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, end quote. Think about that for a second, and remember that, of course, Texas was not a part of the United States in February of 1836. He must then be directing this letter to two distinct audiences, the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. And yet, all Americans in the world is a curious turn of phrase, isn't it? It almost makes Americans seem like an ideological identifier, not a national or ethnic one, a label for any adherent to Travis's particular ideology. Quote, fellow citizens and compatriots, end quote. He calls them all. And of course, even today, Mexicans are quick to remind you that they too consider themselves Americans, inhabiting as they do the American continent. Subsequently, Travis seems to acknowledge something like this, referring to his enemies as only, quote, the Mexicans under Santa Ana, namely the centralist faction besieging him now. Travis knew that this wasn't a battle between Mexicans and Anglos, that this was a battle between two very different views of the structure of government, with Santa Ana representing the old Spanish centralist system and the, quote, people of Texas, end quote, representing the Republican federal system for which San Antonio had revolted many times before. Subtly, his opening respects the separation of Texas from the United States, an important point for winning Federalist support within Mexico, while unifying Texans of all backgrounds behind a single ideological banner. Travis continues, describing how he answered Santa Ana's demand for unconditional surrender with a cannon shot, and then drops the line that still gives goosebumps 180 years later, quote, I shall never surrender or retreat, end quote, he declares, underlining it for emphasis and evoking other great American war oratories such as give me liberty or give me death, or I have not yet begun to fight. And then he changes tone the pace of the letter slows. If he shouts through the first half of the letter, he whispers the next part, imploring the reader in somber tones, quote, in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and of everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch, end quote. Again, the appeal to patriotism and to the American character is curious, given that this is still a Mexican Federalist revolt, unless you recall that he is using American and even the notion of citizenship and patriotism ideologically, not with respect to a particular nation state. Now comes the call to action, with specifics to heighten the urgency. Quote, the enemy is receiving reinforcements daily, end quote, he tells the reader, and they would soon outnumber him 30 to 1. Quote, if this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country, end quote. That little closing flourish is a taunt. It's a jab at the manhood of the men reading the letter from their positions of safety. Would they let others do their fighting for them? Would they not carry the burden of the fight no less than the 150 men inside a crumbling mission? Despite his rhetoric, when Travis wrote this letter, he probably didn't think he was going to die. He wrote this letter to get reinforcements, and we have every reason to believe that he and the men in the Alamo thought they would come. Just two months prior, 700 Texans had defeated a centralist army in San Antonio, and most of them were still within a few days' march at Goliad or Gonzalez. This was a recruiting letter. Act now. Operators are standing by. Quote, victory or death, end quote. The letter arrived on February 26th to San Felipe de Austin, where it was copied, printed, and distributed throughout the colonies in East Texas. It made it to Washington on the Brazos on February 28th, 
the same day that Lorenzo de Zavala and many other delegates stumbled into the humble provisional capital. By March 1st, 1836, 59 delegates from across the state had arrived, including San Antonian Samuel Maverick, Jesse Badgett, the old Comanchero Jose Francisco Ruiz, and his nephew Jose Antonio Navarro. The San Antonians decided to bunk together as a show of solidarity. Their constituents had sent a message in sending these men to the convention, especially Ruiz and Navarro. Ruiz and Navarro were among the most prominent, most respected voices in the state for federalism and, by this point, for independence. There could have been no doubt in San Antonians' minds how these men would vote if that latter question were called. Ruiz and Navarro's contributions to the 1836 Texas Declaration of Independence have long been underappreciated, as well as those of Lorenzo de Zavala, who had, after all, written the 1824 Constitution that Santa Ana had just abolished. The lazy reading of the 1836 Texas Declaration is as a slapdash overlay of the United States Declaration of Independence. But if you've read the 1813 San Antonio Declaration of Independence, the letters of San Antonio's political class during the drafting of the Mexican and Coahuilan constitutions in the 1820s and the subsequent 1832 Bear Remonstrance, you see the continuity of grievances borne by San Antonians right through to the 1836 Declaration of Independence. In Jeffersonian language, the document begins by justifying the right of revolt in a Mexican Federalist context. Quote, when the Federal Republican Constitution of their country, which they have sworn to support, no longer has a substantial existence, and the whole nature of their government has been forcibly changed without their consent from a restricted, federative republic composed of sovereign states to a consolidated, central military despotism in which every interest is disregarded but that of the army and the priesthood, both the eternal enemies of civil liberty, the ever-ready minions of power, and the usual instruments of tyrants, quote, revolt and a dissolution of political bonds is the only appropriate course. Then, the 1836 Declaration sets in with specific grievances, and they are the exact same grievances that San Antonians had laid out in 1832, in the 1820s, in 1813, and for a full century prior, to wit, the lack of government attention to their needs, a corrupt execution of the laws, the absence of due process in their judicial system, no support for their public education system, the confiscation of weapons and disarmament of the local militias, and inadequate representation at the state and federal levels, with a little updating to include the current invasion by Santa Ana's centralist army. Make no mistake, the 1836 Declaration exhibits the overwhelming influence of Anglo newcomers, for example, in their rather unfair critique of the Coahuila state government for carrying out its business in, quote, an unknown tongue, end quote, namely Spanish. Yet no Mexican Federalist would have disagreed with its opening justification or with the grievances that follow. And the 1836 Declaration's most important Federalist endorsement came on March 2, 1836, when the old Federalists Ruiz and Navarro were the second and third men to sign their names. De Zavala was close behind at 10th. With theirs and the other 56 signatures, a new nation was born. And it was San Antonians who gave the new nation its name. We've seen how sometime around 1813, San Antonians began to call each other Republicanos, a subtle act of defiance and commemoration of their Republican-inspired revolt that year. This is in keeping with a broader trend which saw the word Republican take off in the 1820s and 1830s in the Spanish-speaking world as the anti-royalist movement in Spain won out and the independence movements in Spanish America spun off a series of new republics. Indeed, the phrase República de, or Republic of, quintuples over its normal usage in the Spanish-speaking world during that decade, as you'll see if you plug it into Google's Ingram tool. This is the kind of thing you can never prove for sure, but it sure looks to me like San Antonians and their Republican tradition were the source of the name, the Republic of Texas. Undoubtedly, the word would have appealed to Jacksonian Anglos, who had just begun to call themselves Republicans as well. But North Americans in the 1830s still called their political subdivisions confederations, states, commonwealths, or nations, not republics of anything. And don't try to throw the Republic of Vermont at me, that's an anachronism dating from the 1860s, which you can also verify with Google Ingram. 
After the Republic of Texas came into being, the use of the phrase Republic of doubled in the English language. Other Mexican Federalist separatist movements in the Yucatan and amongst the Mexican states bordering the Rio Grande would adopt it as well, many of them using a very similar list of grievances to those of Texans when they made their own less successful breaks. Once the Republic of Texas was declared, Lorenzo de Zavala was chosen to serve as its first vice president, a fitting honor for the man who had led the cause of Mexican federalism for so long now. He also drew the task of designing the new republic's first flag. On a field of dark blue, de Zavala emblazoned José Antonio Garza's lone star from his 1818 San Antonio minted coin, and between its five arms he wrote the letters of the nation's name, T-E-X-A-S. A white and a red bar would later be added, and the letters would fall off, but the lone white star on the blue field would remain. Of course, the men in the Alamo would never know this. And indeed, the people of San Antonio wouldn't know for weeks either. They were an occupied people, entering their sixth month now of almost continuous warfare. The city was a ghost town, a shell of its former self, with centralist officers again quartered in nearly every building and property subject to requisition at any moment. Further, Santa Ana trusted virtually no one in town and placed many of the leaders under house arrest, including former Mayor Angel Navarro and current Mayor Francisco Antonio Ruiz. And tellingly, he wouldn't allow any military units with local ties to participate in the final assault of the Alamo, so suspicious was he of San Antonian's loyalty. Instead, he had to rely on the troops he brought with him, many of whom were of questionable quality. The bulk of his army were conscripts, untrained and unmotivated, and some were in fact convicts given the choice of jail time or military service. Most were issued massive 75 caliber smoothbore muskets, which lost all accuracy beyond about 40 yards. Aggravating this was the poor quality of Mexican gunpowder, requiring the men to overcharge their guns to make sure they actually fired, but only compounding their monster kick and increasing the chance of singeing the operator's eyebrows if he actually tried to aim it. As a result, many of the centralists simply fired from their hips, which of course degraded their accuracy even further. And let me remind you that this army had just marched 600 miles in 45 days through one of the coldest winters on record, on half rations that were regularly pilfered by their officers. Santa Ana's artillery was better. He had 20 modern, European-manufactured cannons supporting his army. And he had enough powder and shot to keep up a continuous bombardment of the old mission, depriving the defenders of sleep for most of the siege's 13 days. Yet his artillerymen were undertrained, and again, the poor quality of Mexican gunpowder worked against them. And his biggest problem was that most of his artillery wasn't even in San Antonio yet. The snow, the lack of forage, and the deaths of many of his pack animals had slowed the advance of his artillery up the Camino Real to a crawl. In particular, his two largest pieces, 12-pounders that could have reduced the Alamo's walls to rubble in the course of a morning, weren't scheduled to arrive until mid-March. Santa Ana's cavalry, on the other hand, was excellent. Mexican cavalry retained the high equestrian traditions of the Iberian Peninsula and were an object of genuine terror for the rebels. With black leather helmets topped with Trojan-style crests, quick-loading carbines and pistols, and nine-foot-long lances, the so-called centralist dragoons could ride down and decimate any force of men unfortunate enough to be caught on foot. And indeed, throughout the siege, Santa Ana seems to have left the eastern portion of his lines partly open, perhaps trying to entice the defenders into making a break for the east where his dragoons could cut them up in the open. All of this, undertrained infantry, an incomplete complement of artillery, and excellent cavalry that could prevent escape or reinforcement, seemed then as now like a strong argument for Santa Ana to have simply waited out the rebels, or perhaps to have left behind a small force to pin them down while he continued east with the rest of his army. But Santa Ana wanted to make a statement. He had already declared that any foreigners found under arms in Texas would be treated as pirates and executed on the spot. And here was his chance to do so, to send a message to any American observers thinking of rendering aid to the rebels, but also to send a message to his opponents back home, many of whom sympathized with these Texas Federalists defying him now, which was another reason why he couldn't afford to wait. 
Every day that he spent away from Mexico City was a day that his enemies grew stronger. He needed to put this rebellion down with conspicuous efficiency and return to secure his fragile hold on the center. And so, on February 25th, just two days after entering town, Santa Ana made his first assault on the Alamo. Two of his more elite battalions, cazadores as they were called, or hunters, maneuvered into position in La Villita, a few hundred yards southwest of the old mission, and began to advance. An Alamo picket posted outside the walls observed the movement and sent a few well-placed shots their direction. The artillery on top of the mission chapel picked up the signal and followed suit. Centralist artillery elsewhere around the mission tried to use the diversion to advance their own guns, but were soundly repulsed by the Alamo's fixed artillery firing from stationary points with well-studied shot profiles. This left Santa Ana's cazadores unprotected, and they instinctively sought refuge in the few jacales standing between the Alamo and La Villita. After an hour or so, some of the Alamo's defenders sallied forth from the mission and counterattacked the cazadores, beating them back and ending the day's attack. This was enough to convince Santa Ana that a more elaborate plan of attack would be required. Starting on February 26th, he set his sappers to work, zigzagging their trenches toward the Alamo's walls, soon advancing to within 500 yards. He cut off the acequia supplying water to the mission, though the defenders were able to dig a well. And as we have mentioned, Santa Ana started a continuous artillery bombardment to deny the Alamo defenders rest. And that wasn't all that Santa Ana spent his time doing. Somewhere along the march up from Saltillo, the attractive young daughter of one of his soldiers had caught his eye. He ordered her brought to him and offered her the honor of his company, so to speak. But the girl's mother, being a good Catholic, refused the dictator's advances until he had made an honest woman of her daughter. Although Santa Ana was himself already married, he had never been one to let technicalities like that get in his way. His real problem was that he hadn't brought along any priests on this march. Ever resourceful, Santa Ana sent one of his officers to steal the priest robes from San Fernando Cathedral, dress the officer up as a cleric, and there in his headquarters in San Antonio's main plaza, Santa Ana fake married the poor girl. Things weren't nearly so festive inside the Alamo, despite the attempt of some like Crockett to keep spirits high. The men were already growing tired of the corn tortilla and beef diet. Sleep came sparingly. It was also bitterly cold, a blue norther having blown in the night of the 25th, dropping temperatures to below freezing, all while the defenders watched their meager supply of firewood dwindle. And though not a single Alamo defender had died in those first days of the siege, the sick and the wounded were starting to pile up, filling the long barracks infirmary. There weren't many men that Travis and the other Alamo commanders could turn to for help in those days. Their best hope, they decided, was Juan Seguin. Not only did Juan Seguin know how to recruit men and from where, he also had the best chance of getting the men back into the fort, thanks to his intimate knowledge of the country. On the night of February 25th, Seguin crawled out of the old mission through the now-dry Alamo Acequia ditch and rode east. First, he rode to his ranch, which was, coincidentally, the old mission Valero's pasture lands, where he gathered men and supplies. Then, he rode toward Goliad, where hundreds of much-needed reinforcements were bumbling about without direction. He met a rider from Goliad on the road, to whom he related the Alamo's plight, and entrusted Travis's call for aid to Goliad. Seguin then turned and rode for Gonzalez, where he gathered more of his old rangers and volunteers from the other ranches. They, along with others responding to Travis's letter, began to converge on Gonzalez the next day, February 27th. Seventy-two hours later, just as dawn was breaking on March 1st, a single shot rang out from one of the Alamo's forward picket posts followed by a string of profanities in English. The first of these reinforcements from Gonzalez had arrived. Led back in by San Antonian John El Colorado Smith, these 32 men from Gonzalez had picked their way through the 2,000 or more centralists now tightening the noose around San Antonio. The Alamo defenders greeted the arrival of these immortal 32 enthusiastically, not so much because 32 men really made a difference, but because it meant that Texas had not forgotten them. The return on March 3rd of another messenger confirmed that more reinforcements were on the way. Somewhere between San Antonio and Goliad, just a few days' march the defenders knew, were 500 men, many of them veterans of the Siege of Bear. The next night, March 4th, 
50 to 60 more men arrived from Gonzalez. One account has this contingent making it into the Alamo as well, led in by Davy Crockett himself, which would have brought the garrison to some 240 or so men. More likely, these were probably the 50 to 60 men led to San Antonio by Juan Seguin a few days later, but repulsed by Santa Ana's feared dragoons. Unfortunately for the Alamo's defenders as well, on March 3rd, 1,000 more Centralist infantry, including some of Santa Ana's most experienced units, marched into San Antonio. Santa Ana made sure that the rebels knew of their arrival as well, ringing the bells of San Fernando Church and parading his new elite units in full view of the Alamo, whose walls stood now only 400 yards from his sappers' front lines. William Barrett Travis was a romantic, but not a fool. He suffered few illusions about the ability of this tiny, hungry, cold, and sick band of men to withstand an assault from a force 20 times their size. He knew that his time was running out. And so he called on John El Colorado Smith again, sending him with one last desperate message to the convention in Washington on the Brazos. In the letter, his exhaustion after 11 days had moderated his high-souled rhetoric, which only comes formulaically now after a multi-page battle report and supply request. His frustration comes through in his reports of his unanswered entreaties to Goliath and in his uncertainty as to whom he should even address this letter. And in his confusion, he misstates the size of his own force, confesses his ignorance as to the size of the enemy army, and mistakes non-communication by San Antonio's leaders under house arrest with collaboration with the enemy. He apparently doesn't even realize that Santa Ana himself is present. Still, he is clear-eyed and correct on one point. Quote, the power of Santa Ana is to be met here or in the colonies. End quote. God and Texas, he concludes. Victory or death. And he, and many of the other men in the garrison, gave El Colorado Smith a personal letter as well. Travis has read, quote, Take care of my little boy. If the country should be saved, I may make for him a splendid fortune. But if the country be lost and I shall perish, he will have nothing but the proud recollection that he is the son of a man who died for his country, end quote. And once again, we see how life, liberty, and property blend together in the ideology of the day. Remarkably, by March 3rd, the Alamo garrison still had not lost a man. The old mission whose walls had been built to deter Plains Indians on horseback had performed admirably so far in keeping out a more modern army. To picture the Alamo in 1836, conjure in your mind the shape of a very fat letter L, with the top of the L being the north side of the compound. The north wall had endured the brunt of a rebel artillery barrage during the Siege of Bear, and still bore the scars. The breached portion had been repaired by laying logs across the opening, backed up by rammed earth. Unfortunately, the repair was plainly visible from outside the walls, and drew the attention of centralist artillery almost from the start. The long, uninterrupted west wall looked back across the San Antonio River and towards town. The officers, including Travis, had taken up residence in the quarters built into the west wall. On the rooftop of the southwest corner of the compound, the garrison's massive 18-pound cannon commanded La Villita on the east bank of the San Antonio River, just a few hundred yards away, and fired off around three times a day to signal back to the east that the fort still held. The main entrance to the compound was through the south wall, the bottom of the letter L, which had been well fortified by a trench and earthen redoubt. But between the south wall and the Alamo Chapel was a gap of maybe 115 feet. During the winter, the Alamo's engineers had built up an earthen berm there and planted a palisade wall across it with branches strewn in front. It was perhaps just as vulnerable as the north wall, and it was here that David Crockett and his Tennessee volunteers were stationed. Continuing out to the eastern tip of the L was the old chapel, the famed shrine which still stands in downtown San Antonio today. Inside the roofless chapel, the Alamo defenders had built up an earthen ramp where they positioned several cannons and where they mounted their flag, the green, white, and red Mexican tricolor with the number 1824 in place of the eagle and serpent, a reference to the year of the Federalist Constitution that Santa Ana had recently abolished. The defenders housed their powder magazine in one of the few rooms of the chapel that did have a roof and their non-combatants in the other. 
at the elbow of the L on the east side of the compound were the so-called long barracks, which also still stand, and which served as an infirmary and quarters for the men. In front of the long barracks, outside the compound, were walled horse and cattle corrals. The truth is that all things considered, the Alamo had been turned into a fairly imposing fortress. Its walls averaged some ten feet high and two to three feet thick. The old mission bristled with artillery, about twenty pieces in all, with adequate powder and shot for each. As well, the walls were surrounded by the Alamo Asequia ditch and by picket posts that the Alamo garrison manned nightly as a sort of early warning system. The defenders were blessed with a surplus of firearms thanks to the muskets they had captured from General Cross back in December so that each man counted on several rifles at his station. And the defenders' small-bore Kentucky rifles had already started to prove devastating as the centralist sappers closed in on 200 yards, well within their effective range. Yet the perimeter of the compound presented some 1,320 linear feet to defend. Once artillerymen and the sick and wounded were accounted for, this left 10 to 20 feet or more between each rifleman, and the defenders began to realize that they couldn't match up to the numbers arrayed against them. On the evening of March 4th, Juana Navarro Alsbury stepped to the front of the stage. Juana Navarro was from one of the oldest, most reliably Federalist families in the state. Yet more specifically, she was the daughter of a man who had been caught his whole life between loyalty to his town and loyalty to his nation. She was the perfect symbol of the complexities of the moment, but also of the heroism of its principal actors. She entered and incredibly returned to the compound perhaps more than any other person during the siege. That evening, Juana Navarro left the compound again under a flag of truce. When met by one of Santa Ana's staff officers, she informed him that she had come to negotiate the surrender of the Alamo on terms. It's unclear if this was a sanctioned effort by the Alamo commanders or whether this was undertaken by Juana on her own initiative. If sanctioned, what a vote of confidence from the Alamo commanders in this 24-year-old young woman. If unsanctioned, and indeed, it certainly would have fit with what her father had done just a few months before, trying to resolve a violent situation with as little bloodshed and with as little damage to the town as possible. If unsanctioned, then what initiative on the part of this young woman? Her parley failed, however, and when she re-entered the compound, no doubt remained in the Alamo defenders' minds as to the fate that awaited them. On the morning of March 5th, Lieutenant Colonel William Barrett Travis convened his men in the courtyard of the Alamo. From the walls, the men could see the Centralist Army building their scaling ladders. Somewhere close to 3,000 men now had them surrounded, and the chance of any relief force breaking through was nil, especially with Santa Ana's feared dragoons patrolling the approaches to town. A last-ditch effort at a negotiated settlement had just been rebuffed, and a new blood-red flag had gone up in the field to accompany the original one still flying over San Fernando. Quote, Our fate is sealed. Within a very few days, perhaps a very few hours, we must all be in eternity, end quote, Travis supposedly said. Yet Travis, even as a commander of men in war, was first and foremost a believer in liberty, and that as sons of 1776, and in the case of San Antonio's defenders, sons of 1813, it was each man's right to decide his fate and how he wished to face it. He drew his sword and marked a line in the sand, just as old Ben Milam had a few months before. All who would stay, he instructed them, should cross this line. And they crossed. One by one, two by two, riflemen and artillerymen crossed, recently arrived New Orleans Greys, side by side with Tejanos who had lived their entire lives in the shadow of the old mission. Even Jim Bowie was carried across on his cot. This is the moment, isn't it? The moment that encapsulates the whole drama. Regardless of whether Travis ever drew a line or not, at some point in that 13-day siege, each of those defenders knew they were going to die. This horrible, glorious moment is, I think, what makes the Alamo such a powerful story. The very idea of choosing to die for anything, of knowing that death is coming, and yet choosing to go down swinging, is so foreign to most of us from our comfortable present that the only natural reaction is cynicism, even though the evidence really doesn't support that. Maybe it's because we're more civilized now. Maybe it's because we're less. Only one man, legend has it, didn't cross the line. 
a Frenchman and veteran of the Siege of Bear, Louis Rose, also called Moses because of his advanced age, slipped over the wall that night. The other men who stayed behind, traditionally 187 of them, gave their valuables and last messages to the women in the compound. The officers in particular entrusted theirs to Juana Navarro, and David Crockett dressed himself in his finest clothes, resolving to die like a gentleman. On the night of March 5th, 1836, at 10 p.m., Santa Ana's artillery fell silent for the first time since it had arrived, and the exhausted defenders fell asleep. In the cold calm of that unguarded night, Santa Ana positioned his men into four columns at each of the cardinal directions, some 400 men to a column, except for the southern column, where he placed 125 elite cazadores to square off against Crockett's Tennesseans. 400 of his most elite soldiers he held back in reserve under his personal command, and the 375 dragoons he formed up along the eastern side of the old mission to ride down any breakout attempt. Around 5 a.m. the next morning, March 6, 1836, Santa Ana's centralist columns began their advance, trying their best to muffle the clanking of muskets, ladders, axes, and crowbars as they inched toward the forward positions. The three Alamo pickets posted outside the walls were killed in their sleep, allowing the centralist lines to advance to within 200 yards. At that moment, the bugle sounded, the artillery opened up, and all hell began to rain down on the sleeping defenders of the Alamo. The men in the compound arose, groggy, shouting, running to their posts as shells crashed down all around them. In particular, an inordinate amount of fire was soon focused on the north wall, the repaired breach attracting shells like an open wound attracts flies. Travis sprang from his quarters, clutching his sword and sawed-off shotgun. He yelled to the men, Give them hell and no rendirse, muchachos, and sprinted toward the north wall. Suddenly, the rebel artillery came to life, picking out the long mass centralist columns lit by rockets overhead. Their canister shots shredded the attacker's lines. And when the Alamo gunners ran out of canister, they threw in door hinges, horseshoes, and scrap iron and fired off their makeshift grape shot to terrifying effect. We shouldn't pass over here the miserable plight of the common soldiers in the centralist army either. Most of them, as we've said many times now, weren't there by choice and harbored no particular animosity toward the rebels or toward federalism generally. In many cases, they were more afraid of their own officers, who stole their provisions, abused them, and used bayonets as their primary tool of motivation. And still, they advanced too, toward the withering fire of the Alamo's guns. The attack on the west wall foundered as it attempted to cross the now-empty acequia, slowing the attackers before an unbroken field of fire. The attack on the east wall never really even got going. When Santa Ana dammed up the acequia system, it had flooded over the lands to the east of the mission, creating an impassable marsh that now made slow-moving targets of his men there and Crockett and the Tennesseans were savagely effective on the southeastern wall. The Casadores attacking from the south drifted toward the southwest corner of the compound to avoid them, where they came face-to-face instead with the Alamo's monster 18-pound cannon. Yet the situation on the damaged north wall was perilous. There, Travis climbed the parapet and began directing the artillery. As the attackers neared, he leaned over the wall to fire his shotgun and was met by a volley of muskets. There and then, the 26-year-old serial debtor, failed lawyer, and reader of too much romantic fiction met eternity. I've never forgotten T.R. Fahrenbach's description of the moment. Quote, Buck Travis was one of those most fortunate of men. On the grim stone walls of the Alamo, he had found his time and place. End quote. Travis had fallen, but all that Santa Ana could see from his vantage on a slight rise to the northeast of the old mission was 187 rebels beating back 10 times as many of his men. Santa Ana didn't accept failure easily, particularly not when his personal reputation was on the line. And as the first attack stalled, he ordered a second push. The bugle sounded, and cries of Viva Santa Ana and Muerte a los Tejanos rang out from his veterans who pushed forward. Some of them reached the walls and pitched their letters up, only to have them repeatedly thrown down. Rebel fire from the west wall proved devastating once again, and the column attacking from that side faltered. Similarly, the column from the east bogged down and drifted unconsciously toward the north side of the compound, 
the narrowest of the Alamo's perimeter walls. Crockett's unit holding the southeastern corner had decimated the column attacking them, and so repositioned to assist their comrades fighting off a new attack from the southwest. It was still barely 6 a.m., yet Santa Ana could see that this second attack was also stalling out. Even if he was a bit reckless with human life, the dictator was an experienced general, well attuned to the momentum of the battlefield. And he sensed the weakness along the north wall, and decided now to throw all of his reserves at it, some 400 additional men, with orders for the west and east columns to redirect all of their energies there as well. A mass of men surged forward, and numbers won out. According to some accounts, it was actually one of Santa Ana's generals who was the first to summit the wall. Others began to batter windows and gun loopholes, and the Alamo's secret sally ports were soon discovered. Like water breaking through a dam, the attackers suddenly poured over, around, and through the north wall. Juana Navarro, her sister, and one-year-old nephew had taken refuge in a room in the northwest corner of the compound, and according to her later account could, quote, hear the noise of the conflict, the roar of the artillery, the rattle of small arms, the shouts of the combatants, the groans of the dying, and the moans of the wounded, end quote. Suddenly, centralist soldiers forced their way into the room where they were hiding. Two Alamo defenders, one Anglo and one Tejano, threw themselves between the women and the attackers. They succeeded in saving the women's lives, but at the cost of their own. The attackers then set about robbing the poor women, including, of course, most of the possessions of the Alamo's officers. Fortuitously, a centralist officer who knew their father entered and escorted them out of the compound. The cannon play now opened within the courtyard itself. The defenders turned the artillery along the south wall inward, and the attackers turned the captured artillery from the north wall to meet them. A horrific carnage ensued. Grapeshot, canister, and musket fire filled the compound. With attention focused inward, the south wall was left undefended, and Santa Ana's elite cazadores finally broke through. The defenders along the west wall were cut off. They pulled back and back and back, firing as they retreated, until finally, at the southwest corner of the compound, they ran out of room. There, according to some accounts, is where David Crockett fell. The centralists moved now room by room through the compound. They wheeled captured cannon in front of doors, fired once, poked their muskets through to fire again, and then finished off whatever was moving with bayonets. When they reached the long barracks, which served as the infirmary and housed a dozen or more sick and wounded defenders, they loaded a double charge of grape shot and fired it through the doorway. When they entered, there was no need to do anything more. In one of the rooms along the south wall, presumably, they found Bowie in his sickbed. We don't know the specific details of how he died, but it would be a curious thing if the most famous knife fighter on the continent had died any other way than with a weapon in his hand. With the compound overrun, the remaining Alamo defenders, maybe only 80 or so by this point, retreated toward the chapel to make their last stand. They piled up stones and rubble and pivoted the artillery to face their attackers. Inside the chapel, the non-combatants cowered as children cried and infants screamed. At one point, a 16-year-old defender, really just a boy himself, ran in to try and tell the non-combatants something, but his jaw was broken. He tried to hold the dangling lower half of his face with his hands to form words, but couldn't, gave up, and ran back to his doom. The attack slowed momentarily as centralist officers tried to restore order to their own forces, who were in some cases now firing on each other in the dim light of dawn. They ordered the captured rebel artillery brought up to face off with these last defenders. In the lull, some of these defenders looked over the flimsy palisade wall and decided to make an organized break for it. Perhaps as many as 50 men jumped the wall, rounded the chapel, cleared the acequia, and made it to open ground. But there, Santa Ana's 375 dragoons were waiting for them. The horsemen with their high-crested helmets appeared on the horizon and rode down the fleeing rebels, who tried in vain to organize a defensive retreat. But they were no match in the open field for these well-trained dragoons, who slaughtered them to a man. The centralists finally opened fire with their captured cannons on the Alamo Chapel itself, the last redoubt of the dozen or so defenders still standing. Almiron Dickinson and Gregorio Esparza, whose families were ensconced in the chapel, fell fighting in the doorway of the shrine. 
Four of the last surviving defenders rushed in to protect the noncombatants, but were promptly shot and run through with bayonets and, quote, lifted up on those bayonets like a farmer does a bundle of fodder on his pitchfork, end quote. When the attackers broke into the safe room, they then bayoneted a pair of boys, 11 and 12 years old, who tried pitifully to protect themselves with their blankets. The other noncombatants fully expected to die as well, and were saved perhaps only by the sudden appearance of some of the more compassionate officers. By 6.30 a.m., the battle was over. The bloodlust, however, ran hot for another half hour. The bugle call to cease fire was ignored. The centralists bayoneted and shot anything that moved, and then reloaded and shot them again. Some of the wounded they tortured before they dispatched. Some bodies they mutilated after they were dead. Only the rumor of Santa Ana's imminent entry into the compound finally restored order and brought to a close the bloodletting. Santa Ana rode into the Alamo and surveyed his victory. Some accounts tell of a handful of captured defenders being brought before Santa Ana. They were summarily and savagely executed. He was on this occasion, at least, a man of his word. He had prescribed death for the rebels, and he had given them death. It was exactly as he had wanted, a bloody and conspicuous reminder to all in Mexico who would oppose him. He commended his men loudly for their courage and for their great victory this day. His officer's diaries suggest that the following Viva Santa Anas were half-hearted at best. At least 600 men, one-third of his fighting force, had been rendered ineffective as a result of the battle, killed, wounded, or otherwise left behind to tend to the aftermath. One of his officers quipped, quote, With another victory like this one, we may all end up in hell, end quote. The 15 or so noncombatants and Travis's slave Joe, who had actually participated in the battle but had been spared, were marched out of the compound. An anxious Angel Navarro retrieved his daughters Juana and Gertrudis and took them back to his house. He would die just six months later, weakened by the stress of his traumatic final months. Santa Ana ordered Mayor Francisco Antonio Ruiz to accompany him and point out the bodies of Crockett, Bowie, and Travis. Then, he ordered him to conscript San Antonians into work parties. Santa Ana wanted to imprint the trauma of the entire episode deep in San Antonian psyches. It wasn't enough for him that they had endured six months of battle, multiple hostile occupations, unwanted confiscations of their property by both sides, and the deaths of their loved ones once again in the cause of liberty. Santa Ana wanted San Antonians to know his brutality up close and personal. He charged them with disposing of all the dead bodies. The floor of San Fernando Cathedral would be stained red for months from the blood of centralist officers honored there. The corpses of enlisted centralists were hauled less ceremoniously to a mass grave in the Campo Santo beneath today's Santa Rosa Children's Hospital. As for the defenders' bodies, Santa Ana ordered San Antonians to haul them to a spot somewhere near the future site of the Joski's department store. He ordered them to prepare two long funeral pyres, one 60 feet long, one 80 feet long, a layer of men, a layer of wood, a layer of men, and a layer of wood. Burning the corpses, Santa Ana knew, would serve two purposes. One, it would deny these rebels a proper Christian burial, in honor that he would permit of only one defender, Gregorio Esparza, whose brother had been conscripted into Santa Ana's army. And two, Burning the rebels' bodies would obscure their numbers, which Santa Ana had already inflated four times over in his battle report back to the capital. And on top of the pyre, he made sure to place the defender's flag, the green, white, and red Mexican tricolor with the number 1824 taunting him from its center. Around 5 p.m. on March 6, 1836, 12 hours or so after the battle had commenced, Santa Ana ordered the funeral pyres lit and the bodies of the Alamo defenders, Mexican, Anglo, Tejano, and from many other parts of the world, were reduced to ashes and united for eternity. It would fall to Juan Seguin almost a year later to finally eulogize his fallen friends, his, quote, heroes who preferred to die a thousand times rather than submit themselves to a tyrant's yoke, end quote, and to give their ashes a proper burial in front of San Fernando Church. There, he reminded San Antonians that they had just witnessed the great culmination of their generation-long struggle for freedom, 
that at great cost, but to its eternal honor, San Antonio was now, and in truth always had been, the cradle of Texas liberty. As he said, quote, I invite you to declare to the world that Texas shall be forever free and independent, end quote. Thank you for listening. There's too many books here to recommend. I'll put a few up on my website, www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. There's really only one proper way to conclude an episode like this, with a moment of silence. If not for the sacrifice of these men, then at the very least, for the supreme poetry of the entire episode. Again, thank you for listening.